0: Hello and welcome. This is Friend Request. I'm your host, Justin Lamb, and this is episode 118 with my friend Dana. Hi, guys. Happy New Year. It is 2023, and most importantly, it is January. And if you are participating in dry January, boy, do I have a treat for you this month. All of my interviews this month are with people who are sober. Now, whether or not that has anything to do with the story they tell Uh, And what role that plays in their story varies episode to episode, but just a little inspiration in the background. If you're participating in dry January and not drinking this month, uh, you might hear a tip or a trick or you might even get a little deal on some N.A. beer. But that's neither here nor there. I am so excited to get to this episode. I've been sitting on this for months when I got the idea for the dry January theme. I reached out to Dana, and I said, hey, can I hold off on publishing your episode until January? He agreed. I'm so thankful he did, because what a way to kick off the year. We talked for two and a half hours. Uh, Obviously, I cut that down, because I don't think you guys are going to listen for two and a half hours. I think I know my audience well enough to know that that's not going to happen. But I, I kept, you know, all this good stuff, and... And I really, I think you guys are going to love it. I really enjoyed talking to Dana. He's got his own podcast. I'll talk about in the end here, but without further ado, I want to let you guys jump into it. New episode, new month, new year. Here is episode 118 with my friend, Dana. You and I have lots in common, my request is sent, would you like to be my friend? You like to be my friend? Thanks for hopping on here. Hell yeah, thanks this for an, having this me. This is an early one for, the, I mean, generally speaking, I, I do these in the afternoon typically. So This, is, this is nice. Nice little morning. I, um, I like it. <laughs> I, I appreciate you being here. I, I, yeah, I'm man. excited to see you again. I'm excited to be able to dive into some of the stuff that uh, we grazed over when I talked to you. Uh, on your we show we didn't really
1: graze over it it was more me the, the more i listen to that episode the more i'm like shit man like i hijacked half that fucking episode with my own it maybe i'm over i'm i'm probably over playing so that in are. my head but i was like god i feel like i just talked about like i talked either talked over you or just ended up like blabbing no too much so i'm really i mean i didn't get that impression
0: you. and I think okay, that's good. what editing's for. So
1: it was just more me being like insecure about myself talking too much, which is just me. That's one of my it's isms. So I don't know if that'll come up fine. in the
0: conversation. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, so I, I get out of Cheers. your head, Dana. All right. I'm done. <laughs> well done. Cheers. Cheers. So this is, this happens occasionally on my show and, and I'm excited about it because it, it's always super interesting for me. And that is, I normally start out with how I know people, and I don't know you. Um, you, yeah, right? But I, I'm I'm always excited about this because I get to kind of meet you in a in a really unorthodox and in, in somewhat intimate way, where I'm just kind of finding out about your life in its entirety, instead of uh, you know like, oh hey, how you doing? Oh yeah, yeah. You see the game? Cool, 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 cool. Right, right. <laughs> and and we. We know each other kind of just through a mutual sober friend who has now been on both of our shows. And you reached out to me, and I was excited you did because I've been on your Life show and, and had a lot of fun on there. And um, it, honestly, like the the interview I did with you, I was like, I listened to it back, and I'm like, oh, I sound pretty good, <laughs> which I don't often say about myself. So I was very I'm, happy with that, and I, I'm glad that I'm glad that we did that. Yeah, I, I thanks yeah, for the platform. I, your part was.
1: I thought it was good. And, and obviously people like it because it's been listening to it. I, this Yours <laughs> is the first that. episode that like has surpassed a previous episode yes. in terms of like plays. Yeah. So I was like stoked. I think I'm right at 100 plays. And to be at that at the two week mark or whatever is really, yeah. really good for my little show. So oh, believe me, excited.
0: I know the numbers business. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's that's very exciting. Um I'm entering into three figures. I'm excited. Yeah, hey, I'll tell you what, it is easy to downplay it like you are in your in your sarcastic voice right now, but it's that's a it's awesome. Um it took me a very long time, and I still don't like to talk about individual episode numbers because I feel so small and insignificant. Um, but like overall downloads I'll be like, yeah, like when I every 10,000 that I hit, I'm like, yeah. Um And I'll like make a little post about it, but it's hell. Yeah. Cause we, and I say we, because I I know in your show, you know, we talked about how you are involved in, in kind of like a podcast growth um, community and it's really easy to get uh, like kind of a version of um, imposter syndrome where you're talking to people that are like, yeah, you know, uh last episode only got like 5,000 downloads and and you're sitting yeah. there over there like I got I got 50. <laughs> you're like
1: Exactly. It's exactly what it was when yeah. I started. I was in the at like 50 is yeah. my average but and I'm it, like, "Oh my god."
0: That's see to me and it like again took a long time. Um and I think we talked about this though. We're like and part of me doesn't care how many downloads it gets because I'm just like, no, I said, I'm going to do this every, like, I don't care if nobody listens to this, I'm going to still stress myself out and put this out every time. Yeah. That's, you know, an hour long episode, you got, that's 50 hours. People have dedicated to just like take in a piece of content you created. Yeah. And who knows how many of those 50 people like that piece of content ended up helping get through that day or that week or whatever. Um, or, or more than that. So it's... It is significant. It is. And it's it's really easy. And I, I need to take my own advice on this most of the time. But it's really easy to tell yourself, like, that's not much. Because everything around you or the stuff you're you're trying to get to is so much bigger. Like, if you... You know how many times I've gone to websites and been like, oh, I'm going to, you know, try to become part of this podcast network. Or I'm going to try to get this sponsor. And you can't even apply Can't even apply unless you get ten thousand downloads an episode, and I'm like, well, fuck. Well, (laughs) yeah. (laughs) I guess never mind. Um, because that's, I mean, that's a lot. That's that's a lot. That's crazy, and I don't know how that's sustainable for someone that's not in the celebrity world. You know, I don't
1: either. It's, I guess, it's just. I don't know. I guess it's one one listener at a time and there has to there comes a point where at some point it, it reaches some sort of saturation or point where it it takes on more like your people like the six degrees of Kevin Bacon thing or whatever where yeah. like eventually enough people are referring you that it exceeds whatever you're doing yourself and then it sort of snowballs. Maybe I don't know. I all I know is I like I'm so grateful to you for having me just selfishly you know again reaching out to you cold call, cold emailing or whatever it's and called doing networking this man <laughs> it, but but you're the biggest you'll be the biggest show that i've been on and that's it's going to help i because the one that i that aired last month i've done three or four interviews now um and like they haven't only one of them is actually published yeah. And that's when my numbers really started to take off. It, like I had people messaging me on Instagram. Hey, I heard you on Deb's podcast and I'm following your show now and everything. So I think that really helped probably more than anything that I did myself was just being on someone else's show. And so just from a growth, just from the little guy to the, to the medium guy, thank you <laughs> like for being the medium guy who, I am also you know, guy. welcomes the little oh, guy yeah. in to, to help. And, and I do uh, all numbers aside, I do hope that it helps somebody because what I usually do being inside my head before, during and after is, oh my God, I just rambled for 40 minutes about God knows what. And, and I'm, I sound really vain and super vacuous or whatever V adjective that you want to fill in here that, um, you know, it, it, it was all about me and it was just about me getting pity and attention and all these other fucking like idiosyncratic weird
0: things yeah that I, do I mean that's head, a lot of so. i think that's a lot of storytelling in you in your in your own head about that and it plus is. i mean if you're the guest on a podcast yeah it's all about you that's the whole fucking point well man. it is <laughs> so with it, that in mind on that on that note <laughs> let's let's transition over to that and yeah, and go back in do. time a little bit um i know a few things about you i know you're in ohio we'll ignore that yeah. for now <laughs> <'Cause I'm, laughs> i'm in michigan um and there's some strange unspoken rivalry for uh for a couple centuries i think it all started with the toledo war but we won't get into something like that history.
1: little border little border skirmish and there's a little yeah. line of yeah, where the they little, decided to draw that i was teaching the boys strip. about that that little strip and yeah.
0: we got the better like deal ohio. i think the deal was you yeah. guys get the toledo strip and we get uh the I up th- <laughs> and it's like i right. think that's it <laughs> other than that i mean i what tell me tell me about growing up did you born and raised in ohio you have a sibling? Yes. Yeah. what's that look like
1: yeah so um Born and raised here in Columbus, Ohio, you know, dad, uh, worked at the wastewater treatment plant in town after he got home from Vietnam and worked there for 26 years, very faithfully, uh, and from the seventies into the late nineties and, um, was able to buy back his time from the Marine Corps and retire for a couple of years before he unfortunately died of lung cancer. When I was 19, um, he, Uh, had taken a couple of college classes but had not gone to college he was like the perennial underachiever and he i me being his uh firstborn and his only uh i became the perennial overachiever and kind of the fulfillment of the working class you know uh uh american dream for my that side of the family i'm the first one to go to college mom uh, likewise came from uh, she grew up on a farm here in Columbus I mean my mom was born in 1940 and didn't have indoor plumbing and you know she's still alive she's 82 and it's hard is, to think uh, about a she farm tr-
0: in Columbus
1: yeah it, it's it, it it's like she grew up on uh, the side of the town that I grew up on and where the farm was is now like you know, suburban <laughs> Yeah. yeah it, it actually is, but it, but it became, I think a church bought it, but it's surrounded by just subdivisions and yeah. everything else, the, the sprawl, the, the lovely American late 20th century sprawl, but you know, I'm sort of the product of that suburban. Uh, I mean, I'm, I, I say all the time I'm kind of like your stereotypical uh, white American. I mean, I'm like middle income, Midwestern, was raised Christian, um, you know, straight, so if white, I, heterosexual, if I make some monogamous, married, three kids, single yeah. family home kind of guy. Um, so I'm kind of like your average dude.
0: I'm wondering, I guess, in he, a stereotypical way. You said your mom was born in 1940. Um, if I'm if I'm making some assumptions on your age, she had you pretty late. Yeah she did so i have siblings who are old enough to be my parents
1: um they're my half siblings from my mom's first marriage so oh, okay yeah like uh so yeah mom's born in 1940 and i was born in 1980 and uh she was like 39 and a half and i almost killed the poor woman uh and with this big old noggin of mine and i decided to come out breech so you know like and in 1980 that was kind of a big deal you know yeah. like it, i i everybody was completely freaked out so i started out my life by
0: freaking people out i guess tell me about the older half siblings yeah so
1: um my it's two sisters and a brother um my oldest sister was 22 or 23 when i was born so um haven't been as close with her um she has kids that are my her daughters are my nieces and they're only a few years younger than than i am um but my brother, who was born in 1960, he is 20 years older than I am. He and I have been um, close, especially ever since my dad died um, yeah. when that whole thing happened when I was 19, 20, and he was my age now. It like that really bonded us together, and we've been pretty, pretty close ever since. And then my youngest older sister was 15 when I was born. And so I was like, she was the one that changed my diapers. And okay. like, you know, even though we don't keep in touch quite a bit. Um we don't keep in touch very often. She and I have this sort of like very intimate, yeah. instant connection that will always be there no matter what. And she's like big sister, but she's also kind of like a mom. Like
0: Was kind she of like the only one mother. in the house when you were growing up at all?
1: Yeah. So she would have been the only one there okay. when I was first born. And um, you know, it turns out she and I are the ones that have struggled with the with the addiction issues. Um and sorry i'm pausing i like i'm pausing because i'm like oh god i don't know if i'm supposed to talk about it. like if well, i don't let's, know if i want to go too well well too much we'll into, that. into that
0: in a minute and obviously like i i want to hear your story um i i think yeah. it's it's super important to me that people don't attempt to tell their family member stories necessarily like obviously like yeah. people have an impact on you um and events that you're a part of are are important to uh to your own story but Well, Uh, at the same time, like, yeah, I mean, but I'm also not going to say my mom
1: has done Al-Anon about 10 years ago. My mom started doing Al-Anon because of my, my big sister's, um, lifelong, um, alcohol addiction, which she's doesn't make any bones about. She's like, Hey, I I drink. The point of all was was to say that my mom and my own addiction, And recovery has done a a good job of not trying to manage that for me because she's been through Al-Anon, but my mom's former codependent self would have been, (laughs) you know, she's had to work through all of her own issues, many of which I inherited. And this would have been a lot different recovery story had my mom not done like recovery work of her own in Al-Anon. So that was just the
0: point of that little sidebar. Did your childhood pretty much feel like an only child? Childhood?
1: Yes, Yes. So that's, I, I joke that I've got all kinds of like birth order issues because I'm the youngest. <laughs> I'm my mom's baby. I'm my dad's only. And I was the firstborn and the, you know, whatever. So my older siblings didn't grow up in a stable home. Uh, my mom's first marriage was much more tumultuous. And my dad was like the settling force in her life. So um, he was kind of the, you know, I'm the high strung, more like yin whatever. And my dad was like the, it, and that's kind of more of my mom is like the yeah. overachieving perfectionistic people pleasing type, and then there was my dad. It was like the chill, kind of like my wife is like the chill to my to my crazy. Yeah, my my childhood would have been. Um, I, I was the focus of. I I, I told my mom that uh, you know I felt like I was the the golden child or like I was the redemption child. Like I was the the kid that was supposed to. Um, sort of like achieve all these things that she wasn't able to achieve because she had run off and married young and um, had these kids when she was very young and um, had been in a marriage that didn't end up working out. And there was all kinds of like shame for her on having come from a Christian household that that didn't work out. And so, and then, you know, my dad, like I said, was kind of the underachiever. And so it was a, a great, thrill for him to see me go off to college in my freshman year at Ohio University before he died um, as kind of like the fulfillment of all of his blue collar working class, you know, efforts to get his kid to um, school. So I I went to a college prep school. Um, I was in a a failing suburban semi-rural school system that they had an enrichment program for the gifted kids that I was a part of, but then because the levies weren't passing, they didn't, um, you know, that program went away. And that's when my acting out really started to kind of show up. And I was in overcrowded classrooms and, you know, I, I'm like, you know, it always been kind of the precocious kid. I don't know if it was a, a again, that firstborn thing or what it, what it was, yeah. but you know, it just was, I always felt like I need to, I need to perform. And that was not from that. They, it was not something that they intentionally did. It was just, it just kind of happened. They, they told me all along, Dana, if you want to dig ditches for a living, we just want you to be happy and they meant it and they really, and my mom still means it. So and let's, you know.
0: can we play with that for a minute? Cause yeah, I'm please. curious where do you think that came from? Cause I, I, I struggle with the explanation of it just happened, right? <laughs> like that's um, So yeah, I wonder if we could dig into that a little more sure. And I mean, I could make some assumptions, like uh, maybe you saw something in the environment around you, and as you grew up, you're like, "I have to do A, B, and C so I don't end up here. Um, you know, and you can have supportive parents and still not want to like be like your parents. Uh, Sure. I think
1: for me, it wasn't like, Oh, I don't want to work at the shit plant like my dad. And I, it wasn't at all that. It was just like, I think I really internalized this, like maybe this misty eyed sort of, you know, growing up in the Reagan years and then into the nineties, there's still this stars and stripes and apple pie, like late 19, 1900s, sort of Midwestern American Idealism that I sort of picked up on that I think I just wanted to achieve, and and I I love getting praise, so it was just the better I, the more I did, the more praise I got, and so when mom and dad you know sacrificed a lot to get me into this college prep school where I was going to school with the millionaire kids as like the token you know like blue collar kid that they put on scholarship to come there, yeah. then I did feel this pressure to like perform, and my older siblings kind of like. Tease me about it, you know, lovingly. They, they, they really all loved me and never begrudged it to me that I grew up in a better home with them because they loved my dad and like he, they understood how good he was for my mom, and so like I I think for me it was just I felt like I wanted to please my parents. I I wanted to make good on what I knew that my dad because I knew it had been really hard for him coming home from Vietnam and he had had a marriage that failed that. After they had gotten divorced, his wife had, his ex wife had committed suicide. And so there was like mm-hmm. all these things that, even as a kid, I think I knew that, like, I really want this to work for my parents. My mom couldn't go to school, college, dad didn't go to college. And I just want to make this work. And they're sacrificing so much. We're not going on vacations. We're not, li- we're not doing f- fancy things. They're not driving new cars. They're driving beaters so that I can go to this school. And, and it all worked out. Like, I got a, merit scholarship to ohio university and, and rotc paid for the rest of it but you know i just i developed as a as i had leadership qualities or characteristics that got cultivated in this um in this um really great private college prep school uh and it was good but i mean i started out as like treasurer in middle school on student council and worked my way up to like class president in high oh, school and then you know to to Student council president and scholar athlete and lettering and two sports and doing all these things and being all these things all these people and I was a kid that you know I had other my friends parents tell me oh we know oh you'll be in Congress one day and we'll see you your name your name will be up in lights like I've heard this all my whole life well, oh so- even now as a new podcaster my my sober friends are like oh you're gonna be famous soon and I'm like. I why do I people tell me this like I is it me trying to showboat and like say look at me and how great I am I'm just like I feel like this great expectation has always just kind of followed me or maybe it's something that I've created for myself I don't know. So
0: I'm curious about you mentioned a lot of stuff so you 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 mentioned your dad died when you were 19. Yeah. Which to me says a lot of the stuff that you know about him like you found out about him prior to that. Mm-hmm. Um and there's a lot of stuff you said that I wonder if you've taken time to recognize, like it's a lot to know as a kid, right. To know, to know the, uh, the details of your, your father's previous marriage, his time in Vietnam, um, to know that your parents are making sacrifices like as a kid, you know, our minds are kid minds, right? So we, Yeah. yeah kind of create our own thing uh the to the best of our understanding what's going on and so i imagine seeing that stuff you start telling yourself oh my parents who are really loving supportive yeah are making their lives harder to make my life better Mm -hmm. and that's a lot of pressure to put on a kid
1: because then
0: you instinctively want to pay that back to some degree i imagine and 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 if I had to guess <laughs> that that probably plays a lot into this kind of overachieving persona that you, yeah. that you have. And hundred percent. So I, yeah. I guess what is, what does that look like if for you as a kid? What, I mean, you mentioned kind of student council stuff in, in middle school, like what, yeah, what's your, what's your social life look like as a kid and teenager?
1: Yeah, I think it, I'm sure it bled over into my social relation my friendships and things with you know, my one buddy, his dad owned a really big car dealership. And I know his parents were divorced and so his mom wasn't like wealthy. So he and I were kinda he was kinda like the in-between friend of mine, but then my other friend, his dad, was like a reproductive endocrinologist and made like a gajillion dollars and like we went to you know, went on a spring break to St. Martin with them one time, you know, and they lived on the same hillside as like Magic Johnson or something. So like, I, I felt like I lived in two worlds in some ways, you know, with family and with school. And I mean, you're talking, my dad would come and pick me up after school and would not want to come inside because he smelled like shit. And, you know, he was driving a beater van that he was, you know, next parked next to a you know the latest mercedes or whatever and so did that affect my social relationships and the way the expectations that i had for myself or that i perceived from others i'm sure it did again my parents somehow managed to move us to very close to the school and so we lived in like the 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 ordinary people's part of the wealthier suburb yeah that somehow they made this work and i don't i don't know how so i i guess i felt like I was going to be the kid that was going to bring my family from being just ordinary people into like this six to seven figure world. And I remember uh, several years ago when I when I left the active duty army, that I had started. I just finally hit six figures in what I was making, uh, and like thinking, "Oh man, I've I've finally made it." And now here I am, like. <laughs> Here I am several years later, not doing that because I've done some downward mobility since then. But now maybe that's why right now, as I've worked my way back down the ladder to where I'm I'm working at Taco Bell part time. Well, really full time right now while I'm homeschooling our sons, which is a long part of the way later story. But now I feel all this shame like I've like I failed, like I was set up for success and I like ascended this ladder and I became an army officer and I did all these, and I served in these elite units and then I left active duty. And then it's just been like, and everything's just kind of failed since then is what it's felt like that, that totally rabbit trail from where you originally asked, but
0: yeah, does it feel social
1: interactions as a kid? I, I don't know if that, I think I had a pretty standard experience as a kid in terms of feeling peer pressures and, you know, like trying to be cool and trying to fit in, but also, I don't know, just, I, I was the guy who got along with everybody. Like I got along with the nerds and I got along with the cool kids I can and I sort of like, I, I would call myself a chameleon in some ways that I would just be whoever, like whoever I was around.
0: So uh, I, it's in. funny cause this, I have, I have a billion things I want to say about that, but <laughs> um, it because it's, it's very relatable, but I, I'm curious, just when you say you, you have the sense of like, if, Failure, like you feel like you failed. I wonder if you've identified or like sat with that to the point where you're, do you think you failed your own goals or, or do you think you're failing your father or your, your family? Like, where's, is that failure yours or is it, you know, what I mean? does that make sense? That question? I think
1: sense. it, I think for me, it feels like, it feels like I've failed my own expectations. Um, okay. again, I, 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 my parents didn't mean to, I I, I say this because I've had this conversation with my mom where I was like, I think I need to say this. And, you know, I'm not mad at you, but uh, because I understand you were just making decisions as a parent and doing the best that you could for your kid. And as a parent of, you know, a teenager and a preteen and a, and a still young one, like, I get it. You, you know, we're all going to make decisions that our kids later are like, why the fuck did you do that? <laughs> but I, I don't begrudge them doing what they did for me because i i know who they are and i know their hearts and that yeah. they were just doing their best for me so yeah to, and it's not black and white it's th- not
0: it's not i i don't mean that to say like so fuck your parents right like that's right not. no no I, yeah
1: and that's not what you're saying but i think for me the the expectations at some point i've always just said they were my expectations for myself in order to yeah in, in order to fulfill the things that like basically don't fuck this up like like it wasn't my parents saying that to me, but it was just the hand that I was dealt was kind of like by life or whatever for decades of my life, it would have been God until recently. And now it's like the universe or whatever it is like dealt me this, this hand. And my, my task was to play those cards in a way to maximize the opportunity that I was given because I, because I was so lucky and blessed or whatever to not grow up in a household that was filled with all kinds of drama and trauma. I really grew up in a very peaceful, loving household and ha- was just had love lavished on me by my parents. Again, as the only
0: functionally, the only child in the house yeah. is all I remember. Well, let's, let's jump ahead. Um, Cause so you graduate, you, you're going to, you said it was an ROTC school.
1: Yeah. So I, so i was kind of like like tuition from the university and then room and board from the army and commissioned in 2002 as an infantry officer uh so we knew that you know afghanistan had already kicked off and iraq was looming on the horizon and so um i went off to the infantry officer basic course 20 years ago well right now and can then i Rangers pause school. you sure. I,
0: before before then <laughs> um, oh yeah Cause I, I want to talk about, I mean, if you're okay to talk about it, um, losing your dad. Yeah. So I probably should, what is... <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: where, it's where all the, I skip over it all the time without even thinking about it.
0: Well, and that's, that's, that's why I kind of wanted to go to graduation. I'm thinking like 18, right? Yeah. Um, so then what does that next year look like? And you said your dad died of lung cancer.
1: Yeah. I died of lung cancer. It wasn't even diagnosed until, so it was the summer after my freshman year of college. I had just finished my first like basic training camp. It was like five weeks of cadet basic training. So it was like, they keep the gloves on and they don't really like scuff you out. The drill sergeants are nicer to you because you're future officers, but (laughs) you know, they, so you do 25 pushups instead of 250 or whatever. But I finished that camp and, you know, had won some leadership award or something. There's this picture of my dad and me on the um, on the parade field at Fort Knox. And he's and, you know, we're, and he's standing next to me. I'm in my fatigues, my old school like uh, jungle or battle dress uniform, which is like three uniforms ago now from the army. And there's this big shit-eating grin on his face, and Dad's wearing this hat that says "Once a Marine, Always a Marine," and it had like a bulldog on it or something. Yeah. And Dad never talked about his experiences in Vietnam uh, with me, not really. Um, I, he was the the Vietnam vet that would sometimes wake up, sw- you know, swinging or whatever. And you know, Mom has told me about that later on. But this is significant because he, when Mom and Dad were getting the tour of the base that day from whatever they were showing the parents around before graduation and they went to the museum and he bought this hat a couple of vietnam hats and he never broadcast that he was a veteran you know again from a different veteran generation of veterans than me which is like thank you thank you thank you thank you thank you and i'm like okay it's okay like i really oh he was probably
0: lambasted by
1: yeah he came home to nothing (laughs) (laughs) yeah and and so Here we are seeing it. And then three days later he was diagnosed with inoperable stage four lung cancer. And six weeks later he was dead. So like it was one of these things where, like, you know, I heard somewhere, I forget who wrote this or said it, but I think it I think it fits for me that your first trauma is where like sometimes it can freeze you emotionally or or it can suspend you or arrest you there at the age that you were out of the first trauma so my first real trauma was my my dad and i were super close like you know we played golf together all the time and like he came to all my practices all my games and was just like the best dad and um everybody loved him and he was just the greatest dude and the fact that he's not here for my to see my three sons <laughs> fucking pisses me off and i you know am trying to work through my my loving anger at him for leaving but yeah. i get the addiction part because i have addictions that have almost killed me or that could kill me. So I'm saying all this to say that, you know, one thing that I haven't talked about publicly and that I I guess I'll say here is like the, the real trauma that happened with my dad was on his deathbed. They had put him on steroids to keep the swelling down in his brain. That gave us about three or four weeks with him. But the last 17 days of his life he was in palliative care. He had started to have seizures. And so he went to the hospital and they had him in palliative care. And there was this episode that he had where I was alone in the room with him and he had kind of like come to and looked at me and smiled. And I was like, oh, dad's awake. And he recognized me, but he, he started to see, he started to seize or whatever. And I had like, you know, he had like that seizure strength. And so I'm grabbing him and I'm like yelling, or I didn't realize what was happening. And so I've been like trying to like Call, oh, hey, Dad. Yeah, yeah. And he looked at me with what I thought was recognition. And so I'm like trying to hold him down. Yeah. He, he. But his pupils were like real dilated, and he's like spewing stuff about Vietnam and all the, all these kinds of crazy, whacked out oh, stuff yeah. is coming out. And I'm alone in the room with him. And so I am holding, like I'm. I, I had to get a hold of him and hold him down. But he he had looked at me in the eye and, and pulled me in for a hug. And I thought, oh, dad just recognizes me and he's coming out of it. And like, he apparently thought I was a woman or something and reached down and like grabbed my crotch. Oh. And so, yeah, like this is the thing that I always, this was, and so I yelled out for the nurse and I like I grabbed and I was strong enough to hold him down. But I mean, it was, so I yelled for the nurse and the nurses came in and got him subdued or whatever. And I, and I remember where I was standing in the room and the first time I really compartmentalized something and I said, like, um, that didn't just like something along the lines of that didn't just happen or that wasn't him. Yeah. And so we'll just treat that like it didn't happen because it wasn't him. And then it doesn't matter because it wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't intentional.
0: Yeah. I mean, which I was, think there's some validity there, right? Cause uh, he's not him anymore mentally. Yeah. And, uh, to, to him at that moment, doesn't sound like you were you. Uh, so it's.
1: It, it So it wasn't and it's one of those things that I know that like if he knew that he did that, he would be like absolutely crushed by it because yeah. like we had had this thing where <laughs> the year before we were playing golf and we were fucking around and he had accidentally hit my um, he had accidentally hit my finger. He was swinging with his eyes closed and I had gotten in the way. It was this weird story. Yeah. He'd like broken the tip of my finger and he was like, oh, my God. And it was like and now as a dad, I'm like, oh, my God. And it was one of those freak accident things that you're like. So the how much bigger of a deal is this than than that? And I think like oh that wasn't. And so for me it was almost like I felt shame, and even now I feel guilt and shame for him. I've never shared with this anywhere publicly yeah. until now. I don't know why I'm bringing it up now, but um, this is the thing that I really haven't worked through in therapy. My my trauma psychologist had told me that Dana, the, you know, your dad's death is the princess and the pea, which I didn't know that story, but apparently there's like. Yeah. It's like the little thing at the bottom of many layers that is under there that create, that is always, yeah, I got (laughs) a lot of peas, but that's the big one. And so even now I'm like, Oh, it's not, it wasn't him. It wasn't really me. That wasn't really a trauma, but losing him was traumatic to begin with. And then that on top of it of like, I, there's this shame and guilt and like, I didn't really tell anybody about it for a long time. I don't even remember if I told Mom, what had happened for a long time because I didn't want I didn't want to upset her any more than she was already hurting. So I want, so yeah, there's that's the trauma that started that kind of started how I've dealt with traumas since with the army and with other things that have happened in my life.
0: Yeah, I, and I imagine it, that's that's a very compounded event, right? Because like you mentioned, you you and your dad were really close, and yeah, the way you describe it, I I would have to guess. Um, even though you know the steroids made the swelling go down in the brain, that was not that was not your dad, right? The last no, four weeks, it, no. was, it was a different person. And but as a yeah. nineteen-year-old, this has been your dad. Your whole like he still looks, is still the same face, you yeah. know, still the same voice. Um, yeah. And like I can't, and what, it it strikes me the same way um, people describe relatives with with Alzheimer's and dementia. And yeah. I mean, it's one of the reasons I stopped talking to my dad before he passed. Cause, uh, like years, <laughs> um, cause he was, he was, he was losing, he had alcoholic dementia and, um, mm. you know, I would hear stories in later years where he thought my nephew was my brother and cause it's just, you know, those synapses aren't connecting the way they're supposed yeah. to anymore. And yeah, so I, I don't think. And I'm not a professional, but I, I mean I don't think you're wrong in compartmentalizing in that way. And I also think you probably it makes sense that you would struggle to put um, where do, like what box do I put that experience in? Right. Yeah. is this memories with dad? Is this uh, just random fucking thing that happened? Like, would that yeah. be in the same category as just like some? mentally ill person in the hospital doing the exact same thing to you yeah maybe you're in some other room and you see this guy starts season out and you're like oh i'm trying to help and that guy grabs your crotch like does that go in the same bucket because it at that point he's kind of a stranger to you right like
1: he 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 was but he wasn't because like we had been even in the hospital but that he would have these lucid times where we would be watching the Simpsons at 5 PM. Like we always did on the goddamn, you know, and, and playing cards or whatever, when he was still lucid, but then he would go into these horrible, you know, episodes too. And so it just happened that that one, but even as you're talking, I'm going like, Oh, I'm overplaying. Like I, you know, I'm, I'm overblowing the, the significance of this thing. It's not that big of a deal. Not because of what you said, just because of how I, I, as I say it out loud for the first time publicly, I'm like, yeah. I don't, I don't know what to put that in. I, I still question, am I making to
0: am but, I right well, to have
1: ignored this for so it's long? It's as big a deal as it, really is, as it
0: is to you, right? Like it's important that we don't put a, a lens on like a uh, grief is a great example. And this kind of ties in because grief and your, and your father, but I was just talking about this literally I had a clinical counseling skills class last night and we were just discussing this because my neighbor died right uh, two weeks ago, two weeks ago mm-hmm. today, and it hit me really hard. And I had to I had to look up his last name because I was like, "That's we weren't like close neighbors. We'd like talk mm-hmm. when we were both outside and everything." But it uh, it hit me really hard. And the same thing, not to belittle anything, but like the same thing when my cat died. <laughs> uh, I had my cat for like sixteen years, and and yeah, that's uh, a big deal. Big deal. There was a narrative I told myself where I was constantly on the defense because I was waiting for someone to come along and say, it's just a cat or it's just your neighbor or where I was like, everyone else is going to think that it's irrational how much this upsets you. And I wasn't allowing myself to fully feel what I was feeling because I was constantly telling myself, someone's going to tell me that I'm feeling too much. And that's a dangerous road to go down. And I struggle with it constantly because I think we do hear narratives throughout our life. Right. Uh, and it could be something as simple as like the cat thing. Maybe, maybe I heard somebody say that when I was like a kid and they're like, oh, it's just an animal. Like, you know, at least your sister didn't die or some shit. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But that's where I, I would just caution you. Like if it, if it feels significant, it's probably significant and that's okay. Yeah. if everybody else in the world thinks that it shouldn't be fuck them like that's okay <laughs> like that's we're our yeah. own people and it's important that we give the gravity uh, to those moments that we feel the gravity from otherwise we're not going to ever process them properly because we're not allowing ourselves to yeah um, but that's my rabbit hole uh <laughs> Oh, hello, guys. Hey, it's dry January, which means if you are participating in that fun trend, you are not drinking this month. And whether that comes easy to you or is more difficult, I have something that will help you out, and that is the delicious beers offered over at Well Being Brewing. They are non-alcoholic. They still have all the flavor of your favorite ambers, your wheats, your... IPAs, your stouts. They have a dry January variety pack right now. It's 10, I think 10 beers of five different varieties, two of each. I could be mistaken, but I'm pretty sure that's it. And you can save 10% off that little variety pack by using code friend request at checkout. So head over to Wellbeing Brewing, celebrate dry January, kick it off well and good. And I can't talk right. And that's fine because you can still save 10%. On your non-alcoholic beer purchases at wellbeingbrewing.com slash friend request, or use code friend request at checkout. All right, back to the episode. So, yeah, what role up until that point, up until losing your dad, does alcohol or any drugs, anything play a role in your life? It was kind of your standard,
1: like story from many that I've heard, which is like just sneaking out when you. 14 or so and you know, find it, some beers that your friend stole or acquired and, you know, doing that and sneaking off to stealing some of my dad's cigarettes to smoke or whatever. And, you know, kind of toying with that again, for me, the the goody two shoes kid, but still wanting to break rules and be yeah. cool. Like, you know, the first time I smoked weed and I've only smoked weed several times, but the first time was like at a cast party sophomore year after being in I think sophomore year. Yeah. And so like, I'm, I'm at like one of the cool kids houses that, that he's a year older than me. And it's, it's a wealthy suburban home. And like we're upstairs and they're passing around a bong and I don't know what that is. And they're passing around a bowl and I don't know what it Like, and they put this in front of me and I'm like, sure. It, yeah. it like, the, the, Oh, it's cashed and all these other things, all these expressions, that I have no idea what oh, they mean. Man. And I'm like, oh, all I, all I know is like, I'm just trying this. And so I think it was kind of the standard experience of, uh, or, or or what to me from many stories that I've heard is like, I experiment, I'm trying to explore what it means to break rules and to be, but, and, and what does that feel like? And what does that look like socially? What does it feel like for me personally? And so, you know, drinking progressed though, alcohol to the point of early in senior year of high school. Again, I'm student council president. I'm like captain of the golf team. You know, we were going to state tournament that year. I mean, we were a tiny school, but it was like, here I am. I'm like achieving all these, you know, culminating year kind of things. And I wore it like a badge of honor. Like, uh, yeah, I drank every, I drank every weekend this fall. I remember specifically like that, that was a big yeah. deal that as a, that at my senior year of high school, I drank every weekend. And that was, that made, somehow was a good thing. And, but I felt, but I remember waking up one morning in December of my senior year and feeling like shit. And going like, is this really what it was like a Sunday morning? And I'm like, why, why am I doing this? And so I, I went out made myself go out for a run. And then I started running every morning before school. And that was what sort of started laying more of the groundwork for the army type stuff um, that came later uh, or that, that was to come in ROTC shortly thereafter. And, And, and so alcohol then throughout college was sort of a standard collegiate experience, especially at a party school like Ohio University, uh, famous for its Halloween party. It's actually a great school. It's a shame like that, it, that its reputation is about the drinking, but it's well how earned, do, I mean, and deserved.
0: How does that work? Because you're doing army stuff, too. Like, so what is what, how does that, sure, so how does, yeah, what's the ROTC is just
1: like, you're training, it's, you know, it's called the Reserve Officers Training Corps because, you know, it's training you're training part-time to go be an officer part-time, but it also, ROTC also commissions active duty officers too. So you're training part-time to go then do it full-time. Well, I had a scholarship where that allowed me to just go into the National Guard if I wanted to. And after dad had died, that was the idea was, I'm going to stay close to home. Even though my older siblings are, are local around with my mom, I just felt like mom and I had gone through a lot with losing dad and she had additional surgeries that year that like it was a crazy time. And it like, it really bonded mom and me in a way that we were even closer. So I was like, I need to stay home. Well, then my mom got remarried um, while I was in college to a guy that I had dad and I had worked with at this, at the gas station that was near the house. And it, which is like, like I had a part-time high school job and my dad yeah. did this part-time gig after he retired. And there was a guy that worked there that ended up, my mom ended up marrying him um, after my okay. dad died. And that was, a whole other weird thing that happened yeah and that i'm sure we could go down the rabbit hole of. but to answer your original question of um i was in college training to go be an officer yes freshman through senior year as a cadet and
0: okay. then
1: commissioned in as a second lieutenant in
0: 2002 so you're doing graduation the military training while also going to college
1: yeah it's like you wear your uniform one day a week Um, to your classes and then you go train you take like military science um, courses for credit and then you do training in the summer Uh, you go to army schools did you see Uh, my face
0: light up I'm so curious about one like when you just said you wear your uniform to classes one day a week yeah is that just not because you have to do something military-esque that day but that's just a to hey everybody Hey everybody! I'm I'm in ROTC. It's like when the cheerleaders or the football players wear their uniforms the day of the game.
1: (laughs) Right? They don't. don't. Yeah, they don't.
0: Because it's not. It. Yeah. It
1: it was basically a way. Yeah, you're you're an an advertising pamphlet for everybody. It's basically a a recruiting tool, if nothing else. But it also was giving. I never knew that. So it's yeah it's also giving you experience and maybe some other programs do it more than one day a week it's just for us it was i think it was every
0: wednesday we wore
1: uniforms yeah.
0: to class no, I, I get then, it it makes sense i i just yeah. i'd never i never yeah. knew that was a, a thing and that's it was the
1: thing and it was but it was this thing of like i'm i'm embodying this persona and it really bonded us you know it's, oh, sure. and in ohio university it was a place that had had like riots and and stuff in the seventies during the Vietnam war. And like the place where we did some of our cadet training in the stadium, in the football stadium had been like firebombed and stuff, you know, back in the day. And so, and this is the late nineties, early, you know, pre nine 11. So it wasn't hostile at all, but people aren't like, hey thanks for your service kind of thing it was just like yeah. oh there's cadets I, it wasn't a huge deal yeah but it also was a way to set us apart and feel like okay i'm going to do this but then senior year especially after 9-11 it was a bigger deal and oh, you know yeah, I can't. like so like we knew we were going to go off to war
0: yeah i i i, I want to jump into that too um i just the last thing i want to say about the the uniform wearing because i i find that so fascinating but i imagine it does two things is one like you said it it really secures bonds with the people you're doing it with right because yeah. you guys are like you know the other people they're the other ones wearing the military uniform on wednesdays on campus um, but i imagine and correct me if i'm wrong but did it kind of force some pride into what you're doing at that time like and uh, to yeah. being a part of that um sure because i and i'm speaking from like a someone that was never in the military and might have like a biased point of view but there's, I imagine there's people that would be like, I'm doing this because I get, you know, X, Y, Z at the end of it. And so like, I, maybe there's some like shame. Maybe there's like, I don't want people to know, but then you got to wear your uniform on Wednesdays. People are going to know. And yeah. you, depending on the reactions and, and your camaraderie, I imagine you come out of that, like feeling a little more pride about it regardless of your original. Oh feelings.
1: yeah. But, but relating it back to the alcohol, that's where the saturation of, you know, um, in, in a sense, it was like a, like a fraternity's uh, Oh, yeah, stereotypical sure. fraternity idea of like you, we didn't necessarily, we didn't live in a barracks or in a fraternity house together. Um, and there were male and female cadets. But like we partied together every weekend, all of us, you know, every freshman through senior year, male, female, it didn't matter. And that really forged us. And alcohol was kind of like the social yeah. lubricant and glue or however you want to word it. And it was, a, there was a lot of drinking
0: but 911 happens the beginning of your senior year, right? Yeah. Is that timing yep. right? Yeah, the um, week
1: before 911 our my cohort submitted our dream sheets up through cadet command uh which would have been at Fort Knox at the time I think and um on up to the Pentagon which I'm told was dream sheet? the plane that hit the Pentagon actually hit part of uh part of what it hit was cadet command and so like our Commissioning year. Uh to this day I say that because of 9-11, I don't know if it's true. I wanted to fly helicopters and aviation was my top was my top choice. And my National Guard unit that I was a part of in Ohio was an aviation unit. And so I had I was gonna come fly helicopters here in the Ohio National Guard. And um to this day I, I say that I flew around in the back of helicopters and jumped out of them and, and fast roped out of helicopters <laughs> instead of flying them because of 9-11. I don't know if that's true or not, but um, I mean, it changed everything for us changed from what would have been just a few years of peacetime service, you know, on, after my mom got remarried, that was the reason I shared that vignette earlier is cool. because once I knew mom was going to be taken care of, I said, hell with the national guard, I really want to go active duty. Yeah. And um, so I, I basically said, Hey, national guard, thanks for being willing to take me, but I'd like to petition to go active duty. And they accepted me to do that. And then I, I probably, maybe that would have happened anyway, because of 9-11, they would have been like Oh, that was Either before 9 11. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Either way, I would have gone because I mean, you know, President Bush, and, and again, leaving politics and other things aside, like, just President Bush decided to fight a, a 20 division war with 10 divisions and didn't listen to Colin Powell. And so the National Guard and Reserves have just been like pummeled for the last two decades because we were trying to fight two wars on, you, you know, with a, a force that was able to do it but that really taxed Stretched people and yeah. and crushed crushed a lot of people in the process yeah
0: so yeah let's in the interest of time let's let's <laughs> yeah sorry move, i'm giving oh, you no, so many I, rabbit trails it's it's so fascinating many. and i appreciate you you entertaining all my questions um i am curious the so i want to find out what the chaplain role was how you found that uh, but before sure. like Segueing into that, what role did religion play in your household growing up in Columbus, yeah. Ohio? Yeah. So the religion piece was when I was born, I was baptized in a Lutheran
1: church for whatever reason, mom and dad, I don't know why they left that church and went to a Methodist church, which is my first r- memories of going to like Methodist church camps and prayer meetings and things at this really wonderful, loving congregation until I was about 12. And then my mom and dad, like there was a falling out with the pastor. The pastor blew up on my mom in front of a bunch of people. He had a very human moment. Was not a bad guy having been a pastor. I know like he just he had a bad day, but it was, came at a very bad time in my mom's life. And she was basically like, I'm done with organized religion for a while. So I spent my teenage years in a Baptist context with my cousins and my aunt and uncle. Um, Cause I still kind of wanted to go to church. and My parents allowed me to, they, they weren't like, you're not fucking going to church. It was just they were taking a break. And so I wanted to continue going. So I went with my cousins who I was pretty close with. And that's a part of the story later on, before I digress too much to answer your question, it was, I I called myself a Protestant mutt. Like I just was sort of, although, you know, a a classic mix of like, well, potato, potato, you know, we all believe Jesus is the savior. And so, you know, let's call the whole thing off kind of thing. And so in college, (laughs) I had, you know, gone to church some and had always said, I want to marry a church. I want to marry a, you know, a a good Christian girl. I want to marry a church girl. Well, my wife's maiden name is church. And so I, I met her. her Yeah. 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 It kind of worked out. I met her on a Habitat for Humanity trip that I did my junior year of college, her freshman year of college. We were both involved in this like Christian men's, women's sort of fraternity sorority thing with the Methodist church there on campus. And, uh, you know, so I'm drinking and running around like an idiot, but still going to church every once in a while, going to church, hungover, or still buzzed or whatever, like a good like Christian. Still, yeah. <laughs> like a good Christian. Right. And so like for, so I, anyway, like I, I, when I got to my infantry training again, it really sobered me up. Nine Eleven really sobered me up yeah. once I was a commission officer. Cause it was like shit. Like after I finished infantry training and ranger school, like I'm going to combat next year. I yeah. know I'm going to go to Iraq. That's real. And so at the time at Fort Benning, Georgia, I had, you know, my buddies were still going out and getting drink, getting drunk on the weekends and meeting college girls and stuff. And I, like I had been talking to Addie, my wife, and she was still in college back at OU and um, we were dating throughout that fall. And I had a great army chaplain who came alongside me and helped kind of coach me about, I was like, you know, I, I always want to be a husband and a father because uh, I was really close with my dad and you know, I, I'm recognizing that like, this is a turning point. I'm 22. I need to kind of get my shit together and stop acting like I'm like I'm a teenager. And, um, so I, even from being a platoon leader in Iraq though, I remember getting my evaluate my annual evaluation from my battalion commander and saying, well, sir, you know, he's like, well, what are your career goals? Do you want to go on and be a company commander or be a battalion commander one day? And I'm like, I really think I might want to be a chaplain. And so what happened in 2005, when I was a 25 year old, I was about to become a captain, and we were about to go back to Iraq, which hadn't happened since Vietnam for a cohort of junior officers who were lieutenants to go back to combat as captains had not happened. It was a big deal, and so the 2001, 2002, 2000 to 2002 year groups of officers were the first group of lieutenants to do this to go back. So I was like all set and stoked to go. We were going to do this special operations type mission where we were going to go train an Iraqi battalion. It was just going to be 12 of us. And I was very excited about this mission. And right before we got on the plane, I had a heat stroke on a Monday morning run because of some Sudafed that I had taken the night before for a head cold and didn't think anything of it went in and ran myself into 107.6 core temperature and yeah. And could have, you know, could have had internal damage, could have brain damage, could have died uh but they they told me they were like well it's a good thing you're in great shape because otherwise this could have killed you well it didn't kill me it didn't harm me long term i recovered from it relatively quickly but, but kept they you off that plane yeah <laughs> yeah it was it was like oh uh, sorry dude we're not going to send you to the middle east where you could you know in september where you could get off the plane and die you know just walking to, <laughs> walk into walk yeah. into the chow hall uh, because you had another heat incident. So they left me home for that year, and I was uh, what's called a rear detachment commander. And so I helped take care of the families and the equipment that was left behind and the, the kids that were hurt or the kids that were pending separation because they were cr- <laughs> had done something criminal. I, I, it was sort of like the misfit, the skeleton crew band of misfits and kids that were coming out of basic training that were replacements, I would put them on the plane and send them over. The plane would literally fly over my house. i <laughs> we lived on the on the base and like I, I would put them on the plane and the plane would go like 2 hours later and i would yeah. like sit on my head with my head hanging and my wife was like i wish they'd just deploy you because you're miserable like it was horrible but what i found also to answer your religion question was that year our church they were in between pastors and they had asked me to preach and teach some and so this kind of reinforced what I had felt before a couple of years before when I was in Iraq, which was like maybe I want to be a chaplain. And so yeah. I was doing, for all intents and purposes, I was doing chaplain work already. I was ministering to the, you know, taking care of the wounded, burying the dead, you know, everything from notifications of hey, having to call cold call a mom and say hey, your kid's in on his way to Germany, he might not make it, to you know, knocking on doors to say, you know, like these are the That's kinds a of things. Heavy that I did role to church. take. And I, oh sure, but I'm 25, and I'm a and I'm a junior captain, and I'm also like the, one of the other roles that I played that year was sitting as a as summary court martial officer, where I sent a kid to prison for I sent a kid to local jail for 30 days and kicked him out of the army because he had refused to get on the plane and was a deserter. But, and so, what, like, so what all is these that crazy, like? Is crazy, crazy pressures. Are you <laughs> responsibility?
0: Dissociating in those moments, or how are you? Like when you're, you know, when you're yes. burying 19 year olds or sending 18 year olds to jail or telling mothers that their kid's dead, where, like, are you? Where? Autopilot. <laughs> Autopilot. It's the same thing. It's what I learned
1: in dad and what happened with my dad, okay. with my dad's death in general, yeah. but especially what I, it was like, this, this is something that's happening, but I'm, I'm here and I'm functioning, but I'm just, I'm just doing well, something that I'm trained to do. The training kicks in. Honestly, well, that's, the Army and that's what I'm thinking of
0: is like. For being in, uh, you know, active duty and being in active combat, those are the skills that like keep you alive, right? The yeah. the dissociation, the like ability to like just think about the mission and not yeah. concern yourself with the outs. But you're doing this on a civilian level, yeah. Which has got to be crossing some stuff in your mind, <laughs> like yeah. So I, that's what that's what really
1: it it's was impressive. a weird year and my my wife calls it the year of 500 wives because like there were days that i talked to my battalion commander's wife more than i talked to my own wife i mean it was really it was really weird yeah like uh you know and it, but it but it felt like a validation okay now now this is my purpose so i i transitioned to seminary and became a chaplain candidate it was almost like going back to being a cadet except i was a captain so i'm not deployable I'm in the National Guard. I chose a seminary in uh, Pasadena, California called Fuller Seminary. Nice, and it's a very kaleidoscopic school. Um, it's a Protestant seminary, but it, you know there—I had one Catholic professor, and I had like professors, professors, and fellow students from all over the world, every denomination you can think of. And it's Los Angeles, yeah. so it was a great place, broadening experience for us. You know, suburban kids from. The Midwest. Um, and my wife's from a small town in, in Ohio. And so here we are, a small town and suburban kids going off to LA for three years. And I learned how to surf and, you know, like had all these great experiences. And I was a part time pastor and part time chaplain candidate in the National Guard and full time seminary student and a new dad. And It was all on the sidelines. So I missed the Iraq surge, basically rear detachment commander in seminary. I was on the sidelines for several years and it was, and the whole time I'm like chomping at the bit. I'm like, I want to get back. All my friends have been deployed again. Some of them twice while I was training, while I was hurt and then training. Did
0: you still want to get back when you, when your kid was born?
1: Yes. It, it didn't matter. It was, this is my calling. I'm called to be an army chaplain. I want to go back and I'm going to go back without a rifle this time. I'll have a chaplain assistant, but I'm going back to help people. Um, it was mostly about like, I want, we wanted to be back with the camaraderie of the military. There's a reason that I dream about the army every single night right now. It's be it, and I'm, and I've been out for several years yeah. is because I miss being around people that understand me that I understand implicitly is like, like there's just a common language, a common, we all wear the same thing. Like I haven't had that in civilian life. So here we were on this little pause for three years in seminary, but we had something to look forward to. And my wife looked forward to it. We look back very fondly on the, the almost year that I spent away in Afghanistan because life was HD that year Um, because I, it was hard. Like there were people dying left and right that year and I was with people either while they were newly, while they were die, dead dying or or some, or just hurt or, or people hurting because their friend had just died and all these things that were so hard to process. And I'm 30 now at that point, but it was like a validation of sorts. Like this yeah. is what I trained for. This is fucking war. And I'm privileged to be deployed at a, t- at a key moment. But my wife had, this amazing community with the other chaplain wives, and you know, all our kids were the same age, and yeah. so like there was this forged common experience that we really we. You're all really, part of a community. It was, yeah, it's yeah. the community. You know, all caps, boldface, seventy two point font, <laughs> italicized, underlines, and then the reason I say that is a way to say like that's what we've been. I've desperately been looking for, and yeah. and and have, and it took me drinking myself into a hole in order to find. <laughs> some semblance of the same type of close community now. So how long are you doing a, you
0: know, chaplain religions,
1: like religious work for? So I, from 2010 until 2015, I was a chaplain, but because I was a prior infantry officer and was airborne ranger qualified, they very quickly sent me to airborne ranger units. And there was a, you know, a mass casualty event while I was in Afghanistan with them. That was almost on the 20 year anniversary of black Hawk down, same exact unit. And I got to be with them. Not on, I was not on target with them, but I got to walk with them through the aftermath of them having a lot of casualties one night. You know, There are all these things that were happening, but it was like, I'm privileged to be here. Like I, sh- I, I don't have yeah. time to take care of myself. It's I, I'm here to take care of other people. And while I was there, my cousin who I had alluded to earlier uh, that I was very close with growing up, he was a Baptist who became Catholic. And I'd known plenty of Catholics who became Baptists, but never a Baptist who became a Catholic. <laughs> the old so. switcheroo, sure. <laughs> yeah. And so, and I'm telling you, like, we were very, very close, like yeah. thickest thieves as kids. And even though we didn't see each other a lot as adults, like just very much a brother. And so when he became Catholic, I'm like, what? So I, you know, I, again, I'm a Protestant mutt, but I'm because I'm a mutt, I'm like open to whatever. And I'm yeah. a chaplain. So like, I'm open to whatever. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to do some reading to understand why did my cousin who's like my brother become Catholic? And then I'm reading this and going like, holy shit, I think I'm Catholic. (laughs) And so (laughs) now the story gets even weirder because I resigned my commission to become a Catholic layperson. And I came back to the National Guard in Ohio as an infantry officer, because when you're a chaplain, you have to be endorsed by a faith group. And when I DQ'd myself as a Protestant, I wasn't able to be a Catholic priest and I think what I did at the time, and I recognize this at the time, probably what I'm doing is finding a way to say I quit without saying I quit. But I really did theologically believe these things, and yeah. I really did leave because of a matter of conscience. And so we became Catholic in 2015. And for the record, now I don't know what I am. I would say I'm not I would say I'm not Christian, but I don't know what I am now. Yeah. And that's a function of the last several years since leaving the military where things have just kind of fallen apart. I feel like I went from hero to zero. I went from being in a very elite military unit that was probably a feeder job. Like guys leave a ranger battalion as a chaplain to go do other things in special operations. Uh, Once once a guy gets inside that bubble, he kind of stays there because there aren't a lot of guys and gals that can serve in special operations communities, chaplains. And so once you're in, it's like you're in and you kind of stay there and it's very fast paced and very elite and very cool and very addictive. And it was a pretty amazing experience. But now ever since I, you know, I left active duty, came back to the national guard and very first morning in the national guard, my national, my battalion commander said, when do you want to take command of a rifle company? And I was like, uh, sir, I haven't been an infantry officer in nine years. And I haven't been to the captain's course that I'm supposed to go to, to be a company commander. And a week ago I was a chaplain and he was like, Yep. Don't care. When do you want to take command? Because I had just come from the Ranger Regiment. He didn't care that I was a chaplain in the Ranger Regiment. Yeah. He cared that I'm a former infantry officer who had a Ranger tab. Yeah. You had a lot of the boxes. Yeah, yeah, a lot of boxes checked. And so of course I said yes. And through all of this, what's happening is, you know, we're holding things together, but we had a community to help hold us together. But when we left active duty, what happened is the community went away, and now I'm a rifle company commander of a uh, uh, unit that's in Bowling Green, which is probably halfway between me and you, yeah. a couple hours away from here in Columbus. So, my wife and kids don't know anybody in the unit. I hardly knew anybody in the unit. Well, what happened was we had done several major life transitions at once. We did. We left active duty living on a military installation where we knew all of our neighbors and all of our neighbors' kids, not you know, 10 houses in the cul de sac, 19 kids, and most of them were boys, and we've had all boys, and like, and I left being a a minister and, you know, I left being a Protestant and I come back to being a civilian and, 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 and we're trying to figure out how to do all these things at the same time. And now there's a looming deployment for me to go back to the Middle East. I was like, oh my God, my marriage and my relationships with my kids are stressed to the max. And, you know, I I realized that I was like playing with fire and I got to the point where I was like, oh my God, what did I do? Like, I can't do this. Like, I can, but should I? Holy shit. Like, I made a big mistake here. And so, the hardest decision that I ever made, the simplest but hardest decision I ever made was in the spring of 2016. I called my battalion commander and said, Hey, sir, I can't go. I can't be the, I should not be your company commander for this, for this unit, for this deployment. And I basically quit. Um, I pulled my guys into a formation and said, guys, I've never seen anyone do this. Uh, I said, as an officer and a ranger and a commander, this feels like treason, but I have to be able to look myself in the mirror. And I know that, and I, and, I, and I told them as a chaplain, as an officer, I've always told guys like, don't sacrifice your family on the altar of your career. Don't do it. It's not worth it. And I said, that's what I'm at risk of doing here. And I said, I can't, I have four people at my house that I can't fail. And I said, I'm, I'm willing to let all of you down in order to take care of them. And so yeah. I I guess I phrased it in a way that like, well, look, I'm doing this noble thing. But really it was, I had fucked up and I was trying to mitigate the damage and I was like, I don't want to lose everything. And so I carry a lot of shame and guilt, a lot of shame for that whole experience. Now I I, like, I feel like I don't know what I'm doing or where I'm at or, but at least I'm sober seven months. So I got that going for me. There you go. (laughs) I
0: want to, I want to make sure I. Talk about uh, sobriety to some degree, um, even though you know what, guys, go check out "I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye." You can hear Dana's story on his own. Podcast. <laughs> That's right. Um, you, can,
1: you can hear more of my <laughs> aimless rambling about the soap opera that has no, been I, my life. On, the- <laughs> I
0: think it's, I think it's very aimed. Uh, I would, I would argue, it's not aimless at all. Actually, um, oh, and thank you. That's it's good not, to hear because
1: I, I feel like it's a hot mess.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, if I were if I were to summarize, right, like, so you grow up in this environment where you feel like you have to make the absolute most a human can make of themselves in order to make up for the sacrifices these people you love so much have made for you. Yeah. You lose your father at the same time of finding this community that you need for this support. You dive 110% into this community, and it's been... Yep that's been your life force uh, because your family's involved in it, right? Like it's the way you talk about your family and the community you had within the military. And over those like 15 years sounds interchangeable. Yep. Um, It is family. Yep. And so you have this and then uh, one day you realize like, I have to do something that they're not, they don't want me to do. And you, you lose this community. You've been, like yeah. that's been your life force. Right. So then, yeah. What else are you going to be a- aim? I think the only thing aimless is probably like how you felt after you left there. Right. Cause you had yeah. this thing, this foundation that, uh, then it's, I thought I was going to be a chaplain gone.
1: for 20 years and retire in my mid to late forties yeah. as a colonel. And, and even then, you know what, I thing. would
0: argue mid to late forties, you would retire and have somewhat of the same headspace. Sure. you're still gonna I probably lose worse because
1: community. i was i already knew i was burning the candle at both ends and i was having all kinds of issues and, and as far as the alcohol in the midst of it and you captured it all perfectly you summarized you know an hour plus of, of me <laughs> talking in a couple of sentences which is
0: i i so did the alcohol but, take off when you left then i'm guessing yes okay
1: yeah so i held So I didn't drink really in my twenties when I was in pastoral formation and seminary. I I made
0: that assumption. (laughs) Yeah, there was a
1: ten. There's a. I knew what my potential was because I had been a binge drinker in college, and I knew that I was a very as an addictive personality that like, it could it could go squirrely real fast. Well, I didn't really drink on active duty as a chaplain until I got to the ranger unit that I was telling you about, and that's when it was like a beer or two, a beer or two to unwind at night. And my wife called it. And like th- this was before I'd left active duty, and before even the Catholic thing, I was sure that I was going to leave because of the Catholic stuff. Like she said, you got to be careful with this because, you know, whenever you get out, whenever that is, you're going to have a drinking problem. And it was just a beer. Oh, it's just a beer. It's just a beer or two, uh, you know, like a good alcohol addicted person uh, yeah. likes to you know, uh, relativize or whatever the right word or rationalize, rationalize. baby Yeah, yeah. Rationalize expert it.
0: rationalizers. I she know. <laughs>
1: Perfect. And so she called it because when I left and came back to the national guard, that's when one to two became three to four and three to four has always been my tipping point where, where it gets, where it, it right. goes downhill quickly from yeah. there. And so, yeah, um, it just got worse and worse until, I uh, concocted this plan while I was drunk that I I bought a plane ticket, a a train ticket, a bus ticket, and I rented a car. And I said, when I leave work tomorrow, I'm going to pick one and I'm going to leave. And um, the only reason I didn't leave is because the special duty police officer that last day is a fellow uh, veteran, Marine veteran who had been blown up in Helmand province in Afghanistan and had his buddy die next to him. And the whole like kind of stereotypical traumatic story but had come home and like kept his shit together. And these are the stories that I tell myself, look, my friend kept his shit together, but I can't keep my shit together. Anyway, my friend Cody intervened and said, Hey, are you okay, man? Cause he could tell I was off. And like, no, I mean, my palms are sweaty. Like I was like, I was getting ready to get on a plane and yeah. get the fuck out here and say, like, I was going to go off the grid. Like Justin, and I had bought a burner phone. I had $2,000 in my pocket. I had my passport in my pocket. When like I was leave. fucking leaving. Yeah. And I mean, it was, I was like, I'm doing this for real this time. Well, thankfully my friend intervened and got me to the ER and got the tickets canceled and, you know, like made sure that I was okay. And I went to the VA for several days inpatient um, and the VA Um, got me hooked up with intensive outpatient via zoom for recovery. So I did recovery in the summer of 2020 for about eight weeks. I did that and it worked and, but I, and I stayed sober for a year on my own, but I took unemployment and I was day trading and making a shitload of money until I lost it all in 2021. So I stayed home. I've been staying home the last two years to homeschool, but I also needed to work part-time to help pay the bills. So, I was working on like UPS at weird hours. Oh, because the weird hours early morning overnight will help keep me from drinking. No, it won't. Uh, oh, I'll switch to Amazon and I'll work from 11 PM to 4 AM. So I won't drink. No, it, no, all I did was drink at 4 AM. So like through all of this, then I reached another rock bottom this past winter where I was like in a hotel locally. I was like, had just left and I was, you know, drinking and driving to work drunk and like at the warehouse job. And I mean, all kinds of, all kinds of shit out of character stuff. I I, I told my therapist, I told my doc, I said, I feel like I'm out of character. Like meaning like not only am I doing things that are out of character for me, but that I'm literally out of character. Like I don't have any character left. It's like, I just stopped caring and I'd given up on people. I'd given up on myself.
0: Yeah.
1: That was February of this year. And finally, thanks to an app that I found called reframe Um, it's available on, on iOS. It's not on Android yet, but, and I'm not paid influencer for them, but that (laughs) app has helped to save me from myself and help to save my life and help connect me with a community of people that I finally feel like uh, understand me and understand what it means to be addicted and to be a hot mess and to uh, be embarrassed and ashamed and to have drunk over all those things. And Holy shit, I'm rambling.
0: No, I I mean, I I think (laughs) it's, I I got myself
1: starting to almost pry. So I'm going to stop there and let you say something. (laughs)
0: Well, it's just, it's no surprise to me that, the community aspect worked right like given given your history yeah. um and if if nothing else you can find community in in recovery um yeah uh which is uh i didn't even know that i wanted that until i found like i was i think a a year sober before i was ever in any sort of group and i was like oh so like you guys feel this way sometimes um and it's And it's, it's a strange thing. I think, thank you. And
1: like, for making it a safe place to talk about this kind of shit. And I really hope that whatever gets left in or out, it'll be, (laughs) it'll be good for, yeah, no, I I appreciate it. And And I I know know. your, your audience is used to listening to long form, like, you know, like long response. So I know, I know it's not unusual for you to have an hour and a half yeah. episode or whatever. I just still, again, my apprehensions and insecurities yeah. kicked in where I'm like, Holy shit.
0: I know, shit, I know they laughing. did. Don't, but you're good. I, I appreciate it. <laughs> um, And I, I, I love the time and I love the compliment. I hope, I hope you find some time to give yourself a little grace today, this week. Working on it. All right, Dana, I'm going to, thanks so much. But yeah. <laughs> you Thank you, man. I'm gonna go really home school.
1: You go do your thing, and thanks for uh thanks for allowing me to share life with you, man.
0: Thank you for sharing your life with me. Yeah, you got it. it. Take care, dude. You too. You and I have lots in common. My request assent. Would you like to be my friend? Would you like to be my friend? All right, you just listened to my interview with Dana Kroll. Uh Dana has a podcast called I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye which I was on months and months ago but you can go check that out I had a, I really liked how that episode turned out I've been on a lot of podcasts and normally I'll listen to them and very quietly promote them because I'd hate how I sound but I really like how that one turned out so go check out Dana's podcast I Kissed Alcohol Goodbye uh, especially if you're looking for any sober inspiration or if you just want to hear more of Dana's story cuz Dana's a phenomenal guy and and he's got so much cool shit going on. God, I'm so glad I got to put this episode out. And I, I keep thinking of all the stuff that I cut out. Like we talked about podcasting a lot more than you just heard in the beginning. And we also dove into uh, his service dog that he just got. Um, he was getting a service dog when we recorded. He was about to fly down to Florida and like meet the dog and like bond with it. It's a whole process. And then uh, he is now back home with the pup and I, I just, I love it. It's really cool. So I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and I am so excited to be back to weekly episodes. The interviews I have recorded, so I mean, I'm good through like March. I, I'm so excited to bring you this content. There are so many amazing people and this dry January theme should be pretty great because you know, I have a, a model. I well, oh no, Oh God. I have two models. I got a comedian. I got, I have so many people, um, who are sober, but that's just like a piece of their story. Uh, and some of them don't even mention it. <laughs> Did that work? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe I'm rambling. Doesn't matter. Thank you guys so much. Happy new year, 2023. Let's make it awesome. If you want to help me make it awesome, head over to patreon.com slash friend request pod. It's just about a dollar a month. You can support the show. Help me pay for these damn hosting fees. All right. I love you guys. I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.